everybody. Welcome to another episode of Asp and Answered with Chelsea Wooding and Megan Bird. Katie joining us as well. Today we are here with Dr. John Metzler, the 28th president of ASP, and who is currently working as director of human performance at Magellan Federal. And John, let me start off with giving you 30 seconds or so to give an elevator pitch bio about where you are now. Don't worry about how you got there. We're going to ask you about that in a little bit, but just a 30 second elevator pitch about where you are now and what you're doing. Sure. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. And I serve as Director of Human Performance at Magellan Federal. Our parent organization is Magellan Health, and our grandparent organization, if you will, is Centene, which is a Fortune 24 company. And in my current role, I provide strategic leadership to help organizations optimize performance, enhance resilience, and sustain readiness mostly through coaching innovations taught by our highly specialized staff of cognitive performance coaches. I have over 20 years of extensive experience providing direct performance psychology consultation to teams and athletes, representing many different sports of various competitive levels, including intercollegiate athletes, Olympians, Paralympians, and professional athletes. And over 10 years, I directly supported the U.S. Army in performance psychology and resilience and developed some course content um, for Magellan Federal that we've delivered to over 2.7 million in training and coaching engagements across the Army in the past five years. So you've done a couple things. Yeah, yeah, I've done a couple things. You've done a couple. You've you've helped a couple people. Basically employed... 90% 90% of people in ASP, I would say. But <laughs> So we would love to get a better understanding of how key figures in our field got to be where they are. So if you could give us a bit of a background on the pathway of how you got to be Dr. John Metzler. All right. Well, um, I love talking about history and maybe this is the one, the only time I love talking about myself because I do think it's a shared experience that a lot of folks have. And I'll start way back because a lot of people, if they look me up, they'll see why is he always dressed in green and whatnot. um, But I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, and basically on the campus of the University of Oregon. My dad was a campus minister and then was a pastor at a church right off of campus. Um, In high school, I played basketball and tennis and probably excelled the most, though, in rudimental snare drum. And so I enrolled in the University of Oregon for a couple reasons. Number one, to further develop as a drummer um, <clears throat> and to also to pursue sports medicine. At that time, I was you know, interested in injuries. I injured myself and you know, the usual, I think a lot of people experience of once you're in the training room, you're like, oh, I wanna be able to help people like they help me. So that was my path. Of course, it didn't hurt that I was from Eugene. It felt really comfortable. It was a known entity. But Oregon at the time didn't have a kinesiology program. So when I arrived on campus, it was was kind of my path forward was fuzzy. Hmm. And um, my marching band career there was awesome. But I spun my wheels academically and kind of got lost as a number at a big university, which I think a lot of people also can relate to. It was bittersweet, and I actually left Oregon with a 2.3 grade point average. Not too long after uh, leading the Oregon Marching Band into the 1994 Rose Parade and Rose Bowl, which was the first time that university had done it in like 56 years. So it was like this really bittersweet moment of you suck at school, but you know the university is doing awesome and everybody loves the Ducks and blah, blah, blah. So from there, I transferred to Concordia University in Portland to pursue secondary ed. Uh, I thought, you know, I had found myself in sport camps and teaching drum lines that I was good at teaching. And so I envisioned becoming a high school teacher and coach. And so while I was at Concordia for secondary ed, I also kept taking the sports science related classes. They had developed a, a psychology major, so I dabbled in psychology. When everything was said and done, I ended up with three majors (laughs) because I had taken 20 plus credits a semester, just kind of like going and doing stuff um, and raised my GPA up to a 3.2. So um, 
I guess that that's my first exposure to being personally resilient and growing out of academic adversity. Uh, Along the way, I did some student teaching, obviously, for secondary ed. I attempted to play basketball. My head coach, I only had one semester of eligibility left. So he was like, you probably we probably can't really use you for like two months. So why don't you go coach high school basketball? I'll plug in. And that's what he did. And I just fell in love with coaching basketball, but I was always curious about the psychology of the game that just kept lingering. So I started looking at graduate training. Like, how do you, what do you do? Can you get into sports psych? You know, what happens here? I bought the ASP directory of grad programs. Wow. Um, Flipped through it. There was like a hundred programs and I'm just earmarking the ones that sort of said applied. And, and uh, I had been in contact with the University of Washington, which back then, and I think still today is mostly clinically oriented. Um, so Ron Smith and Frank Small had said, yeah, come on up to Washington and you get a clinical psychology degree and be licensed. And I thought, nah, that doesn't sound, that doesn't really fit. Um, <clears throat> And I ended up at UNC Chapel Hill. And that's a whole nother story of how I got there, which I can talk for days on. But I really didn't know much about sports psychology or ASP until I landed in Chapel Hill. And now I was a student of John Silva's founding ASP president. And we started drinking the Kool-Aid, to be honest. Um, (laughs) Everything in in classes were talking about professionalization of sports psychology, um, graduate training. I mean, that that was his jam. It is his jam. And um, we were exposed to it. My first conference was 1998 in Cape Cod. <clears throat> and, you know, while I had a, a great applied experience at Carolina, what the, the seed that was planted and sparked my curiosity was if I could have a greater influence. Should I go on and become a greater influence to not just work with athletes and teams, but potentially impact the next generation of, of people. So from there, I went to Penn State, studied under Dr. David Conroy, got connected to him because both Dr. Conroy and I had been students at UNC. So it seemed like a logical pairing uh, coming out of Silver, Silva's program. <clears throat> and here's a funny story. Um, what I didn't understand, I should have, ironically, I should have understood this because I went to Oregon, got lost in the shuffle. Uh, I remember very vividly, Dr. Connery sat me in his office and he pulled out a list with names of universities on it. And he asked me from this list, where would you want to work? And, you know, it had the usual, like Florida, Purdue, Michigan State. Um, I think it had some of the smaller, like Ithaca, you know, those kinds of things. Well, in my mind, I'm thinking, man, I would love to go work for the Gators athletic department and be part of SEC, you know, big time sports. So I'm pointing at those, you know, I'd go work for Florida, I'd go work at Purdue, you know, that kind of thing. Well, looking back on it, I'm pretty sure what he meant was what kind of academic job would you want? (laughs) Right. So (laughs) that sort of charted my path because I think he had heard, oh, you want to become a research one academician like me? And I didn't explicitly say, I didn't know what I was talking about, to be honest. And so my path at Penn State was very scholarly oriented. Mm -hmm. Um, And it trained me the rigors of science really at a high level. And I'm really grateful to, you know, exposure to interventions and coach education, interpersonal communication, motivation, Mm -hmm. and I think I ended up with like nine courses in stats and research methods, which, you know, if you if you think about it, a lot of our peers, I don't, I think that's at the high end. <laughs> Definitely. So, um, of course, from there, I went to Georgia Southern and um, was really excited because there's a rich history of graduate training in sports psychology at Georgia Southern. I was actually a temporary instructor because I was ABD when I got on campus. Mm-hmm taught motor control, taught research methods. Um, But once I finished the PhD, I actually got to step into co-coordinating the grad program. Mm -hmm. And little known fact, I I think it's little known, I actually chaired the IRB at Georgia Southern for a year, I think. So never ever do that as a junior faculty. (laughs) 
not wise, not wise. Um, but, you know, we tried to build a really rigorous model for graduate training and revive Georgia Southern. Um, we did the best we could. And I was, again, a story for another time, but I was open to the possibility of leaving in part to have a bigger impact. Mm-hmm. And in fall of 2009, one of my Southern grad students, the, the, um, the first person I ever you know, served as a master's thesis advisor on, contacted me and said, hey, there's a senior research position at Fort Hood in Texas, part of the Army Center for Enhanced Performance, which she had become part of. So I interviewed at West Point. About a week after my interview, I was sitting in an airport and the news bulletin came across the TV that there had been a shooting at Fort Hood, the Hassan shooting. And at that point in time, I had at least two former students were at Fort Hood. So it was like, texting like what's going on are you okay yeah not hearing anything back um very anxiety provoking and you would think you know that (laughs) that would make you run away from the job um and everybody has their moms too right moms calling me like you don't want that job um but i saw it as an opportunity like well jesus this is the kind of stuff we can have an impact on wow uh this would be crazy so I took the job and I went to Fort Hood, Texas. And at that time, ASAP provided the most jobs in sports psych. I kind of wondered if I got involved and we did quality control and then we communicated back to grad programs what we need for these jobs, that it would impact more than just Georgia Southern. Mm. And, um, you know, one of the hard parts was that I actually had to leave I, my start date was January 2010, so I had to leave mid-year, academic year, with a couple of master's theses on board, and so it was really a tough decision to kind of leave students behind, because I've always been very student-focused. Sure. And so from there, you know, the decade I already mentioned, 2010 to 2020, I served in a wide variety variations on the Army contract, and I'm sure you all know the, the jokes of what are you guys called now? You're not ASAP. <laughs> so Comprehensive Soldier Fitness, Army Resilience Directorate, um, lived it all. And I do want to give a shout out because as soon as I got on board, I was obviously the junior member of the team, but I had great mentors like John Hammermeister, Tony Pickering, Kareen Harada, Todd Riska, Kimberly Helms, um, it's just amazing to work with people that were somewhat established in the field and established in the army. And then as, as I kind of evolved into curriculum development um, and I had an opportunity to do some research, I actually got to rub elbows with people like Amy Adler, Amishi Ja, Chris mm-hmm. Peterson, John Cassiopa, and of course, Karen Rivich. And to me, that was, mind-boggling that I was in the same room having conversations with these people. <laughs> like, I'm not worthy. <laughs> but needless to say, you know, I've, I've worked at kind of a program level for over those 10 years. I wasn't really working directly with soldiers um, or individual performers. But like you all have already kind of alluded to, I started, there were eight locations with maybe 35 professionals in sports psych. And now we are up to 33 locations and over 240 um, positions on the contract, ranging from Korea and Japan to Germany and Italy and all throughout the continental United States. Wow. So, um, you know, it's, that's probably the, the most notable personal and professional growth I had during that time was navigating this idea of scalability. Because mm-hmm. when you have 1.5 million soldiers in active duty, National Guard and reserves, you can't just engage in one-on-one sports psychology. You just, you just don't, you don't have the resources. Yeah. <laughs> so um, now 2020 hit, I rotated off direct support from the contracts, moved into kind of wasn't this title, but became this title of director of human performance. And they serve more as a corporate subject matter expert mm. um, to still providing consultation to the, to 
our ver you know our side of the army contract not directly to the army and then um supporting other business development and innovations for the corporate level oh wow. incredible i also think it's important to note that you're wearing a green nike shirt right now so really homage to, to oregon today yeah i, I can't forget my ducks <laughs> yeah, stay true to your roots as they said yeah. gotta represent well exactly um, so you touched on quite a bit of different moments that you've had. I'm curious if there are any significant moments that really stand out to you that kind of formed or shaped your experience in sports psych. Yeah. You know, um, I had a couple, a couple were just within my growing up in sport. So number one was I, I didn't come from a family that really did sport, you know, where you have like three older brothers and they're all in, AAU leagues or whatever. And so you're tagging along or, you know, like Steph Curry was in the gym with Del Curry all the time growing up. I didn't have those. So I was the firstborn. And what shocked me originally was when I got involved in sport, I actually closed the gap pretty quick for all of my friends who had been playing it. Um, and over time, I realized like there's some there's something other than physical that's going on here because they're six foot three, they're, you know, they've been working out a lot longer than me and all those types of things. And I'm closing the gap. Like, um, so that was curious to me. And I also had a summer camp in my high school um, where I went out to Boston for a basketball camp before my junior year. And it was just a collection of us kind of thrown together. We had somebody from Nova Scotia. We had somebody from inner city, Boston. We had me from Eugene. Uh, and to put us all on a team of 10 and see us all just kind of come together over a week and be best friends with nicknames. And we went undefeated in the camp, you know, and getting to shake Red Auerbach's hand and all that kind of stuff. It was like, how is this possible? Like, we're just a collection of misfits from all over, <laughs> you know? So those, those piqued my curiosity early. When I went to Oregon, I will say I had a course in sports psychology taught by, taught by Dr. Gary Stein, who if anybody knows where he is, or I've lost track of him, mm -hmm. but his course was phenomenal. And it was like, I swear, I think we all have this experience where you take your first sports psych class and you're sitting in there going, oh, imagery, that's a real thing. Like I did that naturally. Yeah. This is cool. How do you replicate? So those were really the the big things that set the stage for, you know, sports psychology in the future for me. Great. I appreciate how much um, homage you pay to other people, too. I think that's really wonderful. Yeah. yeah, of course. I mean, they're the ones who shape us. Right. Well, and just the general generational pieces and doors opening and it's valuable. So now that we understand your background a little bit, we also really want to get a snapshot of the field prior to your presidential service. So how would you describe the field of sports psychology and also ASP uh, prior to you running for president? And I understand, please feel free to focus mostly on things that were particularly relevant or significant to you. Sure. Well, <clears throat> so like I mentioned, you know, I started grad school in 1998. So we're talking about the period of maybe 1998. And you said I, I was president in 2013. So that that time period, um, those fledgling years and kind of junior years for me was still inundated with this kind of continuation of a, an ancient turf war that had been going on. Um, between training models, honestly, clinical psychology versus kinesiology, and then the, the resulting confusion for grad students. Which route do I go? Um, part of the narrative that was continuing was this kind of undercurrent of scarcity of resources, right? There's not, we don't just have oodles of money, so who we've got to spend, um, and who are we going to get, or which training is going to yield the best result kind of idea. So part of that were questions like, is there truly a demand signal for mental performance consultation? In other words, are there jobs? If so, what's the best training? If not, 
why do we even have these grad programs? Well, why do we have 30 students coming out of with their masters if there's no jobs? Yeah. Um, it, if we don't, if we're not preparing them for jobs, what are we preparing them to do in life? Like what, what's the purpose kind of thing? So that was sort of the overarching feel. And then relative to ASP specifically, um, the sense by the time it got to like the 2010s, uh, to be honest, is we kind of realized it had become a self-licking ice cream cone. Um, and what I mean by that, it was functioning as an academic organization. So it was very internally focused. Uh, you know, and, and in my experience, the term ASP itself had like been narrowly defined to the event. When you heard mm. people, it was like, are you going to ASP? When is ASP this year? Are you going to submit to ASP? You know, it, it was used as this noun as like a time, place, and event, um, not as an organization or a bigger mission purpose kind of thing. So, <clears throat> but at the same time, ASP was kind of trying to be referred to as the go-to source for sports psychology. And so that begged the question of like, go-to for whom? <laughs> Ourselves? Do we all get to go to some location just to pat each other on the back and say, hey, we're all on the team? Um, what, what really were we doing in the public? That, that was the big question. Um, and now later in life, I'm realizing that organizations often struggle with how much internal focus do we have versus how much external focus do we have? It's not just an ASP thing. <laughs> um, but <clears throat> it was particularly frustrating to be living kind of in that groundhog day um, with the organization. And we're, there was a sort of this tension of like, how are we going to ever move to a place where we're really offering something to the public? Because we can't complain that there's no jobs if we're not really offering things to the public. Yeah. Um, and, you know, related was professional issues. What does it mean to be a good professional? What training does it require? And it was particularly salient to me because I was one of Doc Silva's students and he started the organization with those kinds of things in mind. So um, it was kind of like, what are we doing 30 years later? You know, or have we made any progress? Um, yeah, so, you know, obviously I'm just one perspective, but from this perspective, I understood from being Doc Silva's student, I understood the birth of ASP in 1986 to be in part due to NASPA's unwillingness to confront professionalization and training issues. Mm. And so it was like, okay, it's time to actually realize that vision from 1986. Mm. Wow. Would you say that is what motivated you to run for president or was there something else that was the driving force behind that? That was a, a big piece of it. Um, Quite honestly, I, I consider myself a little bit of an enigma. Um, I'm able to assimilate and belong to many different groups. Uh, I just told my steps on the other day, one of my most meaningful accomplishments was in high school when I won what was known as the Scott Hankins Memorial Scholarship my senior year of high school. And that's given to a person who exemplifies excellence in the classroom, uh, in athletics and in music. And if you think oh. about, you know, how many people actually <laughs> get into two, if not, you know, not to mention three of those. Um, so I always saw my, myself as being able to sit in a room with clinical psychologists and sit in a room with kinesiologists and researchers and sit in a, a room with coaches um, and be able to almost be a liaison. So, <clears throat> But directly to your question, in 2011, there were about, there were a group of peers, Jack Watson was one of them, um, our kind of level of experience in the field. And we met in a room in Honolulu at the ASP conference. And this was like a, an inflection point. Um, mm. It was one of those moments where we were like, okay, folks, what are we going to do? Are we going to be frustrated and act? Or are we just going to like wash our hands of this, say our goodbyes, not be part of ASP and take off? 
go do our own thing. Wow. And I remember Jack Watson specifically saying this was his last conference <clears throat> in Honolulu. And so what ended up happening is it galvanized us, us to say, you know what? No, let's, let's re-energize. Let's look for ways to lead. Let's get involved um, and see what we can do. You know, if we, and if we get in positions, we can take a look and see if we can make some changes that are impactful and hope, hopefully clarify and solve some of these problems. So that really was the inflection point, I think, for a lot of us. But for me in particular, it was like, all right, we're back in. <laughs> I'm picturing like um, in Hamilton, the song like in the room where it happens. That's like what I'm picturing. So I can only imagine what was flowing in that room at that point. <laughs> yep. It was intense, I'll tell you that. Well, and how powerful a moment, too, to decide, okay, if we're in, then we're going to do something about this. We're not just going to be in and keep being frustrated. We're going to be in and try to make a difference. So if you don't mind me just digging a little bit deeper, what then either made you decide or the group decide that you were going to kind of be this first person to go for this high-level position in the organization? How did you know it was your time to do that? <laughs> Well, this, I guess this will probably be my briefest answer. Um, I can't wait to hear what Jack Watson says because he was he was the first person, mm. or I think he was the first person, if I remember correctly. And quite honestly, for me, <laughs> I can't remember which conference it was at, but Jack came up to me at either one of the socials. Uh, I, it was either the opening reception or the you know the closing reception or whatever. And I just remember him like coming up to me and there wasn't even really any pleasantries in that moment. He just sort of said, are you ready? And I was like, huh? <laughs> he said, are you ready? Sure, what, what am I being ready for? <laughs> He's like, you're next up, let's do this. Wow. I love and that. I said, All right, I'm in. He gets empowered by those drink tickets. <laughs> <laughs> I think this question, I'm, I'm so interested to hear your answer now having that background and that context. So, and especially now knowing that Jack has thrown you under the bus to be in this role. Um, so what were you really hoping to accomplish in your time as ASK president, knowing you all wanted to see change, you wanted to make a difference. So for you, what were you really hoping to accomplish in your time? Yeah, hope. sure. Uh, well, I hope to unite members. Mm. I, I hope to clarify what we offer the public and begin a rebranding and messaging campaign, if you will. And then link stories to the science. Um, so in my presidential address, I focused on moving mm -hmm. sport site toward high definition. That was kind of my, mm -hmm. my pitch. And I wanted to help gain clarity of ASP's purpose, mission, our role in society. And, you know, <laughs> quite honestly, it bothered me that I saw this trend of we're sports psychology, we're sport and exercise psychology, we're sport exercise and performance psychology. It almost felt like we were just grabbing adjectives mm -hmm. and stapling it onto the back of what who we were. And that wasn't comfortable to me. Um, and the reason I was frustrated by that is kind of two things. Number one, those adjectives represent academic traditions or scholarly efforts or in academia, they're faculty lines, you know, so differentiation of these, I, I, uh, these areas, they can be important for academic departments, but they're not necessarily important or clear for your consumers, your public. Yeah. Um, again, they're sort of self-serving. So I saw that as noise. So I was hoping in general to reduce the noise, if you will. Um, some specific things, you know, once I got onto the e-board, I think I got some specific targets. Jack had initiated this, the what became the CMPC, but renovation of certification. So I was wholeheartedly in support of that. Anything he needed, you know, we supported that and it was a priority. Okay. Number two was the logo. And this sound, it probably sounds kind of silly, but you know, the logo as I entered the e-board was, 
I think it was three arrows going different directions. And, you know, I was concerned that it, it symbolized confusion and noise, like the sport exercise performance psychology. Um, I'm a very empathetic person and I get in my mind and I, I don't know if I make up things of where they came from, but I'm pretty sure Dr. Maureen Weiss had led the conceptualization of that symbol. And I believe it had a history in the three focus areas and interconnectedness and diversity. So I understand that, that there was intentionality and thought, um, but I wasn't sure it was gonna represent us well to the public. I thought it was yeah. crazy. So um, changing the logo was hot on my list of things to accomplish. When we dug in, we saw the constitution was, um, how do I wanna put it? It, it wasn't at a mo modern position for how governance and um, decision-making structures are put together or assembled. Um, it had a lot of checks and balances built into it. For example, like the fellows had influence over the certification program. And in order to have accreditation, you have to have independence of the council and the certification program. So we had to, we had to make revisions to the constitution to untangle some of those things. Um, and then Another one that popped up was the Performance Excellence Award. What I ran into was at that time, uh, keynote speakers were, honestly, they were realizing they could demand more. So, so the cost to get like a world renowned keynote speaker at a conference was exorbitant. And plus I, this idea of science to practice, practice to science, how do we share stories and not just be looking at effect sizes and so forth. I wondered if there was a way to bring more of the stories of mental performance to the table. And so I wanted to initiate this performance excellence award, which would honor athletes, performers, coaches that were exemplars of the principles that we espouse and try to get out to our constituents um, to come in and share their story. And then it could be a vibrant kind of lab in front of everybody, a fishbowl where the scientists could say, oh yeah, you see that, that is self-determined motivation. And, you know, it could really facilitate a lot of energy and conversation about that's somebody actually doing what we talk about. Um, and now here's all the science to support it. Mm -hmm. So those were the main areas I wanted to accomplish. So knowing that those were your goals and what an incredible list, um, what do you think now looking back, being on the other side and reflecting, what do you feel like were your main accomplishments when you were president? Well, we got a new logo. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> um, and I do want, you know, I mean, this is, this is um, obviously a public domain. And like I say, I, I appreciate what those did before me, um, but we were very systemic in how we approached the logo. We got feedback from the members regarding the old logo. We went through very several iterations of the new logo. And I also want to shout out, you know, again, Doc Solo was my initial mentor. Advancement used to be in the title of the organization. So throughout the process, even though we had lost the term advancement from the organization name, I tried to put that into the logo with that like mm. forward thinking. There's almost even a D in the kind of the forehead of the human being. It was supposed to mean like drive and, you know, we're progressing, we're advancing. Wow. Um, <clears throat> so I, you know, I appreciate the time to share that. Um, Cause that's like one of those that you're never going to see in a document anywhere. <laughs> um, so we accomplished the logo. We landed the performance excellence award. We obviously finished with certification um, eventually. It wasn't, it wasn't done in Jack's time, it wasn't done in my time, but eventually it got there. <laughs> and then, you know, we tried to change the constitution and honestly, things get a little bit fuzzy. So I, I do know that we uncoupled the fellows from decision-making mm -hmm. and I do know that we um, changed the org structure regarding the focus areas, which kind of uncoupled them from conference programming. Mm. Uh, but I would say the biggest accomplishment was just having the 
the courage to say, you know what, why not? Why can't we revisit this and yeah. take a look and modernize? Um, you know, just to do that and get the discussion going and get decades worth of tensions <laughs> into the forefront and have discussions going, I think that was an accomplishment. Um, another sort of little bit of a sidebar, Jack had actually initiated ASP joining the Joint Commission on Sports Medicine and Science. Yeah. And um, this is an organization for those who don't know that have presidents and executive directors from like NADA, National Athletic Trainers Association, National Strength and Conditioning Association, so on and so forth. And it just gave us access. Like mm. we, we were now talking directly to Brian Hainline, chief medical officer of the NCAA as part of that. And I went to the White House representing ASP for President Obama's Healthy Kids and Safe Sports Concussion okay. Summit. And not that I'm the expert, but at least on some list somewhere, it says the Association for Applied Sports Psychology, and now we're in the conversations. Absolutely. I, I think for me, what stands out so powerfully is to your point, not only did you all make the decision to step in and to make a difference, try to make change, but then to think creatively about what change could be. We don't want this position of power to put it on my CV or my resume. We want to see something different. And to even think outside the box, like you said, for decades, this was how it was done. And to keep moving forward, even when you face those obstacles throughout that journey, too. It's, yeah, amazing. Go ahead, Megan. Sorry, I think I cut you off. No, you didn't. Um, my comment, I think, is similar to yours, Chelsea. When you had these ideas, I don't know, maybe if it was in like the hotel room in Honolulu or when you started like telling the fellows like, hey, turns out you don't get to decide everything anymore. Um, did you, do you think that you were prepared for any backlash that was going to come? Or I guess I'm just curious, like how you approached handling that because I'm sure not everybody was in agreement all of the time. Oh no, nobody was in agreement. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, Jack's got the answer to that. And I, I mean, I have to throw everything to Jack Watson because he is so diplomatic, savvy, politically minded. Um, I can't tell you how many times I was like, let's just roll. And, you know, Jack is, is saying, yeah, but when you say this, this is what's going to happen. And so he, he was just, I learned so much about how you sequence things and so forth. Now I didn't execute very well. <laughs> I didn't have all the diplomatic conversations that he did. He, he went above and beyond, but to answer your question, that's what happened. He, he scheduled, you know, multiple listening sessions and um, enough. So where it was able, everything was able to come out. And then by the time we got to an actual vote, there was nothing left to be said. <laughs> mm. That's right. I do remember being at the business meeting when you were president, and I thought that you handled it extremely well. Agreed. Thank you. I, I, um, if I remember correctly, I forgot all of that. Like it was so emotionally intense sure. that I just lost it. I'll have to go to therapy and unlock it sometime. <laughs> <laughs> we probably know some people that can help you with that. <laughs> Okay, so we've gotten so many great stories already, so I'm really excited to hear what comes out of this. But we'd love for you to tell us a fun story from your time in the field. Anything goes, whatever you like, um, something that maybe brings a smile to your face um, and maybe includes other ASP members. So the floor is yours. Yeah, you know, you all prompted me with these, and I was trying to think of a, a good one. But the only one I could land on, which actually is pretty public, was but it, it's the one that brings the biggest smile to my face is the first president uh, or the first performance excellence awardee presentation. Mm. And this was Morton Anderson, NFL at that time, the NFL's leading score kicker for the New Orleans saints. And then multiple teams from there, I think the Vikings and the Falcons, but he was a longtime client of doc Silva's. So we had this presentation in New Orleans, and Morton's an accomplished, entertaining speaker. Um, Y'all were probably there and saw it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. So I'm not. I'm preaching to the choir here, but I just, 
I couldn't stop laughing. Uh, and I can't tell the story or do justice to the story. But my memory was Morton got up to talk about how hey, he was a soccer player and here's his exposure to football. And of course, he had me and Doc Silva up on the stage with him. And he had Doc Silva get up to um, demonstrate with him. And so he has he's talking about coming to the sideline, being asked to come to a first football practice. And Doc Silva, he, he asks him to get down in like a center stance, not I guess sort of a three point stance. But of course, you're going to snap the ball. And Morton then acts out like he's the quarterback going up behind center and he's licking his fingers. And, you know, of course, he's he's relaying that story to say, like, what the heck is this sport of football? Like, I don't want to be any part of that. <laughs> but to have the founding president of AB <laughs> in a three-point stance with Morton Anderson licking his fingers going up to him to take a snap under center was just priceless. I mean, perfect. Um, we couldn't have we couldn't have scripted a performance <laughs> excellence like experience better. It was just classic. And I, I should note, I mean, so that's like one that everybody knows who was there. But I should also note, um, it's not really a story, but sidebar, you know, I've already alluded to I, I went to camp in Boston. I was a big Larry Bird fan growing up, Boston Celtics fan, and Doc Silva's from Boston. So when I went to grad school, he and I would always like share Boston Celtics stories and Larry Bird stories and all that kind of stuff. Well, my last year on the e-board was the Indianapolis conference. And I was working hard for a couple of years behind the scenes and almost landed Larry Bird for the Performance Excellence Award. Really, really, really close. Um, so but he's, he's a pretty private guy, so. Those French lick people are themselves. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a, I, I remember that performance excellence talk and I remember it being wonderful, but when you add the narrative of the context behind what's happening, it really does add another level to it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a, that's a fantastic one. You've, again, I so appreciate your background, especially with your connection to Dr. Silva and, and seeing so much of the growth of the field and the, the organization. But I'd love for you to maybe a little bit more specifically talk about how you feel the field is evolving. Um, what are your thoughts, both good and bad, about that evolution? Where are we getting it right and where are we maybe still off track? Sure. Well, clearly the job market is kind of clearing up mm. um, more and more jobs are sprouting up and there's more positions out there for, so that question that, you know, bothered me in the beginning of like, where are my students going to go? Hopefully there are places for students to actually go to now um, with some of the internships and some of the positions. And of course, CMPC is gaining some grounding and some footing in that area, particularly with major league baseball and of course, with our military contracts, it's preferred or required now in some of them. Um, you know, I talked recently to a colleague that noted that this, the idea of professional liability insurance uh, being, yeah. being kind of coupled with CMPC has been a really important differentiator for this person getting jobs, um, consulting type jobs. Uh, of course, we've seen improprieties like in gymnastics and so forth. And so I think our consumers want a little more protection and we have it. So that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, I don't think we've still, re we, we haven't fully resolved the, you know, clinical mental health service provision and mental performance consultation, like how those fit together well yet. I think we're still operating kind of on a scarcity principle. Mm. which is understandable because the resources are still scarce. Um, but I think as an organization, we can continue to, to figure out how they fit together and how to promote both and how they work together. One of the things that's striking to me is that, um, you know, we have a mental health crisis. We're not going to be able to train enough licensed health, mental health providers. It's just, there's too many people who need help. So we do have to take an approach that has some systems engagement in it. Mm. Might not be one-on-one, -on -one, you know, 
Um, applied psychology has a role, and I've been more involved with the American Psychological Association recently and been shocked to realize that sports psychology in, isn't on its own. Um, educational psychology, environmental psychology, consulting, IO, consumer, law, they're all dealing with this idea of how can we help public without necessarily being one-on-one -on -one diagnosis, you know, evidence-based treatments, but as a systems approach. So I think we've got some room to grow there um, to fit together the puzzle pieces. And, you know, coaching is growing, mm. not just like sport coaching, but executive coaching and mm -hmm. executive coaching is coming down to lower levels of management. So, you know, how do we fit with that? How do we apply rigor? Some of what my clinical colleagues will say, well, coaching is just advice giving. So, well, how do you make it more than just advice giving, right? So I think th those are some areas to continue to grow. And honestly, even though I was excited about swinging the pendulum towards stories, I think maybe we've lost a little bit in the science and so mm. pendulum needs to swing back and we, we need to figure out a way to add more rigorous science to our, our anecdotes and our stories. Yeah, making sure we're maintaining that balance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's very similar. Dr. Uh, Robin Veely said something very similar about kind of the pendulum shifting and now maybe finding its way back to the middle a little bit. So interesting, very similar ideas. Um, so you yeah. answered this a little bit, but from there, where do you think the field is going? Well, I think, you know, expansion into different performance domains is right on the forefront. That's what we're feeling. We're getting some of this push-pull with, like, is it just sports psychology? Is it just with athletes or, you know, uh, and how do we define that? I've wrestled with, like, should we be looking at things from a motor, like, degree of motor performance versus cognitive, mm -hmm. like, is chess in our wheelhouse? versus, you know, law enforcement and fire, which has a really physical component to it. Um, how do we really, like, where are the boundaries and where do we exist? Mm -hmm. um, and obviously this is near and dear to my heart because here we have 240 people who are working with soldiers. So for any critics who are like, you're not doing sports psychology, you're doing military psychology. Well, I've seen them doing it. <laughs> so, um, and kind of adding the science to it to make sure there's a, a base that supports the interventions. Um, my sense is, is that more and more people are, the stigma of mental health service provision is coming down, but more and more people don't want to feel like they're going to get fixed. Mm. They, they do like the idea of sort of having a, just somebody who's got an expert, different perspective to say, yeah. have you thought of it this way? The science would suggest, you know, whatever. Um, so I think that's a direction we're going to have to go. I want to throw out the word cultural competence. My colleague, Gloria Park and her team are doing some awesome research in this, particularly in the military space, but just as, as the service providers grow, then you can be more selective of, you know, do they look like me? Are they, are they a similar identity to me? Those types of things. Not only that, but what is the culture? It's different to be in a group of medics versus combat engineers versus cybersecurity versus an NFL team versus a college volleyball team. You know, um, so what are the what do you need to think about from a cultural perspective? Um, and then, you know, two other things on my mind. One is the life cycle of sports psychology. What I'm seeing is 25, 30 year old. You can get on the road with a baseball team and not care a bit and go from stadium to stadium and whatnot, you get to 33 or 34 and you got a kid and a half at home um, and you can't be on the road 300 days out of the year. Like, so what do they do? We've got all these people who are specialized and trained and now in their mid thirties or forties who want a real life. Now, what do they do? Yeah. <laughs> um, to my last point, I think coaching the coaches is, is the next wave, hmm. the way we scale. Hmm. And it's interesting to think about that scalability 
in different spaces too, almost kind of stealing what you've been able to create within the military. What does that look like in other spaces as well to increase the touch points that we can have, the impact that we can have? Um, How can we, what changes back to that cultural competency? What changes do we need to make to that to make it fit this space? But also how can we keep that idea flowing? That's really interesting. Yep. So your life cycle piece, that's really my heart's going to hang on to that and think about that for a while, but I'm curious what other, what other advice you have for students or even kind of early career professionals who are entering the field right now. Sure. Well, unfortunately you still do have to look at clinical versus not clinical. That is Mm -hmm. part of the decision tree. Um, I I don't want to sound like a broken record or sound like 30 years ago. So I don't want to like beat that one to death, but as you approach psychology, you do have to make a decision. Do I want to go the clinical route or not? After that, I would say that um, I think the world has been like so specialized, but I think we're as that pendulum swings, we're kind of there's there's value in having more generalists. And what I mean by that is don't pigeonhole yourself into one area. So I think the consultants or professionals of the future will have a background in sport plus cognitive psychology, sport plus IO psychology, cognitive plus IO, you know, they'll have, it's not just going to be one streamlined kind of situation. I think the industry asks for more um, diversity and thinking that will come from diverse areas of uh, academic study. Mm-hmm. If you're just in one lane, you're going to be a one one trick pony, and um, it, which you can get a job and get by. But to really succeed, you should have more more balls in your your bag. Yeah, that makes sense. If I could, I'd give you a standing ovation right now. That yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Oh my gosh, it's so good. Oh, so good. <laughs> John, what do you hope your impact on the field is going to be? Oh, boy. Um, You know, I guess I hope my legacy is that I perturbed the system. (laughs) And it turned out to be like an inflection point that kind of helped rejuvenate ASP and the profession. Like, I honestly don't anticipate anything within my lifetime of like somebody coming up and going, Oh my gosh, thank you. You completely changed the world. But you know, at some point when you string the whole context together and, and you look at things and go, we're in a little bit of a stagnant lull and then got a, a shakeup. And I hope I'm known for not just me, but for, you know, Jack and myself and, Brent and Tracy, uh, that little era that kind of shook the trees and got some fruit to fall. I think you'd be surprised if that ha- doesn't happen in your lifetime because I just so many people I think have been personally impacted by what you've done for the field. I know our students, all of them, talk about like wanting to be in the military, do the military stuff, and so you're you're a huge part a part of that. Oh. Thank you. Well, this last one is a is a little bit of a broad one, but I do think it's really important. What haven't we asked you about yet that you think is important to share about the field, about ASP, about your experiences? What haven't we touched on yet that you think is important to put out there? Um, you know, I gave this a little bit of thought, and I guess I want to use this opportunity um, you know, I definitely want to represent myself as a humble person who always looks backward and goes, okay, yeah, you did some things well, but boy, did you screw up a lot of stuff. Um, and, you know, honestly, just to use this opportunity to apologize for a missed opportunity. And that is an opportunity to address diversity within my presidency and my time on the eboard. Um, Leija Carter was on the e-board during my time and she was pushing and (laughs) when I look back very ahead of her time (laughs) Mm. uh, on formalizing diversity responsibilities, DE&I initiatives and so forth and of course 
as you've already heard, it's it's a combo of me being so focused on like let's let's get our mission right, like let's be very focused in high definition. Well, of course, that's kind of anti-diversity in a somewhat of a sense. Um, reuniting on a common mission and so forth, but also I just was inexperienced. You know, I was younger and didn't have didn't even have a beard, but didn't have gray in my beard. Um, <laughs> but it was a missed opportunity for us to be on the leading edge. We could have been one of the first sport organizations to kind of chart that diversity, and, uh, equity, inclusion um, effort, and it was a miss. And so I kind of apologize to all my colleagues in the field and everything. But I'm glad where ASP is now. And I want to publicly acknowledge Legia, Kensa Gunter, Rob Owens, Angel Brutus, Tanya Pruitt-White, and I know there's a ton of others, but these, the names I just gave are ones who, whether they know it or not, they've impacted me and my thinking. Yeah. Um, so I want to call them out. And I also want to acknowledge that we have further to grow as an organization. We have a lot more room to grow. I've seen some dynamics and experienced some dynamics within the organization that are a little shocking and don't have a place in our organization or our profession. Um, but, you know, and then, then the other thought is in many ways, the ASP presidency kind of it fundamentally changed me. It mm. was one of the more isolating experiences I've ever had. Wow. Um, not many people, it's funny because we, we deal in a human profession and we're, we talk about vulnerability and sharing and empathy and so forth. And I'd say my experience was not many people saw me or saw my heart, saw my intentions, um, really recognized the willingness to sacrifice or for the good of the whole or that my mind was always cranking on, well, if you move this, how's it gonna impact this person over here? If you move that, you know? So, and as a leader of an organization, you're exposed and taking fire. Um, but I have to quote the great Brandon, Brendan Carr, um, who when I was kind of going through these experiences, he, he noted to me, which was really impactful, he said, Remember that when you're playing a first-person shooter game like Call of Duty or Rainbow Six or whatever, if you're not coming on resistance, you're going the wrong direction. Hmm. That always stuck with me. It's a good whatever generation we are now because we'll play video games or you all play them probably more than we do. But um, anyway, so for that being said, I appreciate this effort. I appreciate you, Chelsea and Megan and Katie, for taking the time and initiating this idea of, of um, allowing past presidents to have their voices heard and memorializing some of my perspective. We're super honored that you were willing to talk to us. And, and I hope that um, people really take to heart like that vulnerability that you just shared. And may we all have that level of self-reflection. It's incredible. Yeah, I hope so too. And I want to echo that as well. I, I want to thank you for demonstrating um, humility, for demonstrating a willingness to look back and say where we get it wrong. Because if the goal is progress, not perfection, reflecting on where we could have done better helps us figure out where we can still grow and where we can still do better moving forward. And so I, I really want to thank you for that. That's a yeah, powerful, powerful moment. Um, Whew, so many nuggets. Oh, so good. Um, as Megan said, thank you so much for taking time for this. I, I truly can't thank you enough. Not only Megan, Katie and I, but our whole research team, and I'm sure everybody listening so appreciate your story, your vulnerability, your willingness to share. And also, I just want to thank you for the energy and the effort you've put into the organization. Um, it really is not being in easy in those, uh, leadership positions and the fact that you with a more than a nudge from Jack uh, stepped into that. It's um, yeah. Thank you for that. You've, you truly have helped the field in so many ways and we're so grateful. Okay. So with that, we've asked John has answered and uh, we will see you next time. <laughs>